0: I come across people all the time who take themselves so seriously and they put on these airs or they think they have to act a certain way because they're in a position and that was the thing I learned from him is that you don't. If you're not careful you can create a space where people won't tell you what you need to hear. I understood right then that those types of environments, how you create them, can really disempower people or have them put them back in their shell in a way that's not healthy. Legacy is a real issue, and I mean it for every person. I mean, I don't mean it's not just for me in a leadership position, it's every person. You have an impact on people that ripples out beyond what everybody thinks, I think. Business is not simply about dollars and cents, that it's about something bigger, and that you can use your business to do good business, but also to do good.
1: Hello, friends, and welcome to the Heart is Wild podcast. My name is Chelsea Sanders, and I'm the CEO and founder of the creative agency called Blue Line. I'm a professional photographer, creative director, and a painter. Some would say I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've created film festivals, empowerment conference. I've owned an art gallery for 10 years. As you can tell, my passion is to keep creating. This podcast is for creatives and passionate people, for entrepreneurs and anyone who is willing to follow their heart. Through my 17 years of being an entrepreneur, I've met some amazing humans, and I'm on a journey to interview those people that have touched my life and captured their extraordinary vision. I'm looking forward to sharing these experiences and interviews with you so you can apply them to your own life. Let's get started. And today's guest is president of Cook Group and Cook Medical, Pete Yonkman. He's been with the company for 20 years and is actively involved in community issues, including adult education, workforce development, fostering startups, and creating a business culture that supports entrepreneurs. In this episode, Pete and I talk about his early childhood growing up as a Hoosier here in Indiana memories of his college days, and then we journey through his path on how he went from practicing law to becoming the president of a multi-billion dollar company. We'll also learn as he shares his vast experience of being in a leadership role. We will get some insightful lessons he's learned along the way, what he's learned from his greatest mentor, and why it is extremely important as a leader to be constantly mindful of the human interactions at work. In addition to that, Pete will tell us about how his company and he himself has dealt with the recent pandemic crisis, and in between, we'll throw in some funny off-topic questions. Get ready for an insightful, yet fun conversation, and enjoy the podcast. All right, so Pete, how,
0: how are you doing today? Great, Chelsea. Thank you for having me on your podcast.
1: Thanks for being on it. So you know, I know you professionally through, you know, the president of cook and we've worked on a bunch of projects together, but I am very interested to know about young Pete Yonkman. So <laughs> take us back way from little boy to like 25 year old Pete. Can you give us, can you, can you yeah, take us back?
0: Yeah. <laughs> so I grew up in crown point, Indiana, which is up in Northwestern, Indiana. It's called the region. So I was a region rat,
1: the region and,
0: uh, yeah. And it was very different than what it is now. So now it's kind of a suburb of Chicago. But back in the day, back in the olden days, it was uh, it was a very small town, had a great center square, great courthouse, still sort of you know, seventies suburbs, you know, uh, I'm just talking about, say, with my parents, actually. So I was when I lived there, I would walk to school every day when I was in kindergarten. And it was, you know, it was I don't know how long in my mind it was forever, but it was probably a mile or so. God, I can't imagine letting my kids do that now. I so much appreciate how we grew up. You know, our kids have great lives on that, but it's I so much appreciate the freedom we had when we grew up, riding our bikes everywhere, going out to play. You know, you'd go in, you'd get home from school, and you'd come in when it was dark. And oh, yeah. you know, you'd be out and so I that was great. I Had great friends, and we played all kinds of sports and pick up basketball, pick up football. You know, it was just all that growing up, and didn't have the internet, didn't have all the the devices. It was a it was a nice time to grow up, I think. You have to worry about cyberbullying and Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff. I, I feel bad for kids having to navigate that and then especially having to navigate it through a pandemic. But so that was nice. I, I grew up, uh, had a you know a fun childhood and then I uh, went to high school in Crown Point, graduated from there, uh, went, to, then went to Indiana, to IU, in Bloomington, and sort of always knew I was going to go to law school because my dad was a lawyer. And I suppose I hadn't really thought that deeply about it at the time looking back, but I wanted a broad education. So I wanted a liberal arts education. So I ended up being a philosophy and a psychology major, which totally unemployable really, if I hadn't done something else, I think. So that's why I ended up going to law school. But uh, I really look back at that and am happy with that education because you got to think of, you know, understand how people think and why they think they, they do and how they think. And so that's, uh, Those areas of study have served me pretty well over the last few years. And I went to law school at IU, also in Bloomington. And knew I didn't really want to practice law. I didn't want to be in a law firm. So I went up to Michigan and worked in insurance for a while and then got a call one day and said, hey, Cook's looking to hire a lawyer. Are you interested? And so it was a pretty easy choice to come live in Bloomington again. So that's how I got back here.
1: All right. Okay. I got to go back. Got to go back to the kid days. So how would your fifth grade teacher describe
0: you? Well, I will tell you, Chelsea, I was awarded, I'll go my sixth grade. I was awarded sixth grader of the year, the very prestigious award of sixth grader of the year. I don't know what that means, but that was I was getting given that award. I would say probably my teachers would have described me as quiet. I was always a pretty good student, didn't get in a lot of trouble, halfway athletic, not terribly athletic, but I was just probably an average kid. I mean, I don't think I was like standout in any one area, but I guess because I was nice to people, I got sixth grader of the year. I don't know.
1: Sixth grader of the year. I think that very might have to be. The name of the podcast, the <laughs> title. <laughs> what about okay? Let's you know, we can maybe like kind of skip over a little bit of the junior high day years, those, yeah, those were are always kind anyway.
0: of, horrible. Yeah,
1: those are always the most awkward, like nobody really wants to talk about this. So, ha- what yeah, about high school? How would your high school best friend describe you?
0: Uh, well, I had a lot of really good friends in high school, and um. I don't know. We had a lot of fun because it was, again, it wasn't those days where everybody was hovering all the time and your sports weren't as organized. So we played a lot of sports. I, I played basketball up until sophomore. And then I realized it wasn't any good. And then played a little bit of baseball. And then I played tennis all the way through high school. And we, I would almost every day I would drive up to Gary, Indiana at a tennis center up there. And we played tennis every day after. And so we just did a lot of stuff. It was a lot of sports related things. And we had a lot of fun too. You know, it was just, I remember it being a very good time in life. I'd Mm -hmm. say. I was a, a good student, but not like the most serious student. I looked back and wish I was a little more serious about it. You know, I wish I was uh, had understood the importance of it. I kind of just, I made I always, I always had good grades, but I just kind of went through it. You know, I, I wasn't as serious as I could have been.
1: Yeah. In high school, did you have any other um, jobs or just like was like kind of sports, that kind of thing? Yeah,
0: I was a maintenance man at a nursing home, which was a disaster because oh, just... I'm the least handy person in the world. I mean, anybody who knows me now would never understand how I could be a maintenance person. I cleaned golf clubs at a golf course, and those were my those were my main jobs through high school.
1: Main jobs. Any extracurricular things beyond the sports? Like were you, you know, ladies' man?
0: Or yeah. Were you like? Not really. No, <laughs> I, I was. Uh, like I said, I, was, I took tennis pretty seriously when I, I became a sophomore, and I started playing that pretty seriously. So that was like every day after school.
1: Okay. Yeah. <clears throat>
0: I would drive up to Gary either by myself or with some friends and we play up there and and do, we had a coach up there. And so it was, took up a lot of my time.
1: So I think that's, I mean, that's kind of interesting. So you got, you became a lawyer for Cook and that was at what age?
0: So I came to Cook when I was 29. 29. And uh, it was a really unique time in the company because it was growing as it always has been. And there was just a lot of exciting stuff happening. And so I got to do a lot of legal work and at 29, you know, you don't know all that much as a lawyer. And so I had to really reach out and find mentors and people could help. And there's other great lawyers around the company. And uh, I just learned a lot about the business. And I was always curious. I I always wanted to do legal stuff, but I started to realize pretty quickly that I enjoyed the creation side of the business a little bit more the, you know, the side where you're not dealing with the problems all the time. There's always problems, but you know what I mean? Like if you're a lawyer, you kind of get the stuff, something's gone wrong or it's a tedious contract to work through or something. So I kind of was drawn to the excitement of the business side of it.
1: Talk more about your mentors at that age. Is there one that, that comes to mind, you know, was kind of pivotal in that moment that you kind of found, found that transition from like staying in the, the law, the lawyer position to maybe transitioning to a leadership role?
0: Yeah, well, that was for me. I was very fortunate to have Bill Cook to be around Bill Cook. He was uh, just a unique human being. I, you don't know, meet many people like that. So brilliant, but you would never know it in a good way. Uh, he wasn't one of those people who kind of showed off, but he was absolutely brilliant. And he knew just a ton, you know, he was a pilot and flew every kind of airplane, which is one thing, but then he built businesses and so much philanthropy and historic preservation. He just knew something, a little bit about everything. And he was just really smart about people. So what I learned most from him was how to understand human beings and what motivates them and how to put them in environments where they can be successful and how to, you know, he he was driven, but he he wasn't like... You know beating on people to get them to do work he was saying you can do this you can do it you can do more and people would rise up to that and they would do way more than what they thought they were accomplished and so it was fun to see people to watch that and i learned from that and it was kind of like people are capable of a lot more than what they even think they are themselves if you, if you give them the right environment they just in the and not the right environment it's also the right vision right so people want to be a part of something that's exciting and they can see the growth and so that's something i took away from him and it was very helpful as I navigate the next few years.
1: Any any kind of um, memorable moment you had with Bill that you recall?
0: Oh my God, so many! You know, this is a guy who was very successful in business. So I, I, I've used this before, but I, I've told this story before. But I, it sort of encapsulates Bill for me. So he's an incredibly successful guy. Built all these businesses, done great for the community. You know, he could have he, he was a legend in that way, but he never took himself seriously. So one day we're driving the car going to lunch or something. And he said, uh, I have a question for you. I was like, okay. And he said, what kind of underwear do you wear? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, I'm just not happy with my selection. Like, I just can't find the right thing. I was like, I I don't know, Bill, I wear like boxer briefs. And he's like, well, what's a boxer brief? (laughs) And so I explained to him, he's like, oh, that is fabulous. That is just exactly what I've been looking for. (laughs) You know, it was just that kind of stuff. And it's a silly story, but it to me, it sort of is like, I come across people all the time who take themselves so seriously and they put on these airs or they, they think they're, they have to act a certain way because they're in a position. And that was the thing I learned from him is that you don't, you can be a human being and be just as successful. And in fact, I think way more successful if people see the humanity in you and, and you allow them to be human as well too. So that, that was, I think my favorite story. Did you ever go shopping with him for boxer briefs? I helped him on Amazon figure out which ones they really, were. yeah.
1: So you, so you were basically shopping for Bill Cook for
0: boxer Breeze. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you pick color selection? No, he picked out his own colors. <laughs> uh, but you know, there was just that kind of thing. And then, but you know, I'm give you our story on that. Sort of the, the to show you the genius of it. He was. I was in my office one day, and he came in, and I had, I had an office very close to his, and so he would come in every morning. I don't know, for an hour or so. And then the afternoon would come in after an hour and spend the afternoon, the hour. And we just talked, and we never, very rarely talked about business. We would always just talk about life and stuff, politics and movies. And it was just a, I don't know. He was a great friend that way. And uh, he came in one day and said, Hey, what do you know about trains? And I said, I don't know anything about trains. And he said, well, I want us to go buy, let's go buy some trains. I was like, well, why are we going to buy trains? And he said, well, this is, goes way back 10 or 15 years. And he said, well, there's a lot of talk about mass transit in Indiana. Everybody's talking about how do we do mass transit, you know, in Indianapolis and everything. And he's like, I'm just so sick and tired of people talking about it. Nobody does anything. Let's just do it. Let's just buy two trains and put them on there and see if people ride these. things." Okay. So <laughs> I knew nothing about trains. And so we just started doing some research and found a company that built commuter trains and found what he was looking for and put a contract in for two trains. And the day before we sent the contract to them, they went bankrupt. So we never got to see the trains on the track, but To me, that was, it showed his, his vision and his approach to doing things is you can study things and you can put out reports and all that, but at some point you got to try it and you got to see if it's going to work and if it's going to be a viable proposition. And he was willing to do those types of things.
1: Yeah. So he's just kind of like, just got to start, just start.
0: Yeah. And see if it works, you know, like his his motto was ready, uh, fire aim. And I think people sometimes misconstrued that as a sort of a shoot from the hip mentality, which it was not at all. So people missed the ready part. He was he was such a quick study. And he would call up everybody and say, What do you what do you know? What do you know? And he would really try on ideas. But what, what I mean by that is you could talk to him in the morning and he would be convinced that something was the exact right idea. But he tried that idea on a bunch of people and it didn't work. And so he's like, that was just the dumbest idea ever. You know, yeah. he never, if it didn't work, he didn't stick with it. And that was something else I learned is that you gotta figure out if it if it works, run with it. If it doesn't, change course and do something else.
1: So I feel like if there was an easy, something you could write down of how to do life, like that's the whole way to do it. Don't get stuck on something, change the course. It's not the end of the world. It's like, mean, that's why we have new days every day.
0: Right, um, and that's why businesses pivot and that's why they change their their business plan. And you know, you gotta find the opening. You gotta find the gap in the line and run through it. If it's not there, don't beat your head on the wall forever.
1: I, I hear you. Well, I'm gonna use that that opening, right? So you're, you've are you met Bill, you've been a lawyer at Cook for a few years so what was that aha moment? You're like, I'm ready to step into this leadership role. Or, you know, what was, what was that like for you
0: getting to. Well, I've been doing the, the legal president. stuff for a while. And one day I was just presented with an opportunity. I had been negotiating with some of our distributors in Japan and China and else, elsewhere. And we were kind of in a transition phase and they asked this basically just the leadership team said, Hey, you want to go and try and figure this out and see if we need to start a, a cook Japan or start our own company over there. And so it wasn't really legal issues. There were some wrapped up in that, but it's kind of, it's a natural evolution. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'd love to. So I didn't spend any time living over there, but I spent a lot of time traveling years traveling over there. And that was fascinating, trying to understand new cultures and how to build a business and what was the right answer and screwed up a lot of things and did some things right. But that was, for me, that was the fun part of it. It was like really trying to solve this big puzzle and, How do you do that? So that opportunity just led into other business opportunities. And, um, I managed our facility over in Spencer, which was a, the time was a manufacturing business and a sales business. And that was great because I got to meet lots of different people and learn about manufacturing products, which I had never learned about before. And uh, that was just kind of the evolution. I was kind of, every time somebody said, do you want to try something? I said, yeah, heck yeah, I'll try it.
1: Have you always been like that?
0: Yeah, probably. I'm always very curious about things. Like I, I always want to know if something works and what, why it works. I'm not mechanically inclined at all. I haven't, as I said before, I'm a terrible handyman, but I really like to understand organizations and people and how they work together and where there's misalignment. That's always been really interesting to me is to figure out, okay, this isn't working. How do we make it work? And and then to go out and talk to other people it's how I think you and I met was <clears throat> I like to have lunches with people. Before a pandemic, I would try and do it once a week and just have lunch with people in the community who are doing interesting things. because. You can learn something every time you have the conversation. You know, I'd always learn something new, maybe make a connection that might pay off a year later, just in terms of a project you want to do together or something. But just that curiosity about, man, what are, they're doing something that's working. How are they doing it? What are, what's going on? And so that's, I've always kind of had that. I, I enjoy that a lot.
1: How big is Cook? How many employees and, you know, just like in a nutshell, if somebody didn't know what Cook was, how would you explain how big Cook is and what
0: what y'all do? So we have, we're primarily a medical device company. So people know Cook in the, in the local community here in Bloomington, people know Cook in a couple of different ways. One is the medical device company and the work we do there, but we also own some commercial and, and apartments. And so we have you know they have CFC, which is a, a real estate owner here in town. We also, the family also owns the West Baden French Lick Hotels. So that was, came out of their passion for historic preservation and, and wanting to bring opportunity. That, that community had 20% unemployment when they started and they knew that if they get those hotels operational again, you know, it would change it. And it has, I mean, now that, Now they have lower unemployment than the rest of the state. So that is another aspect of the, of Cook that I think is really fascinating. The reason I've stayed so long and the reason I want to spend the rest of my life there is because we have opportunities to do things like that. But primarily, you know, we're, we're in size. We're about a $2.2 billion organization. We have about 13,000 employees all across the globe. You know, so we're, we're not in the medical device space. We're not huge. We're sort of a middle-sized company. There are a lot of small companies that do one product. We do 10,000 products. Then there are some massive companies like a a johnson johnson or a a medtronic or boston scientific so we're kind of in the middle range which we sort of like to be because it allows us to be a little more nimble than some of the bigger companies
1: all right thanks for sharing that so now i want to talk about real life stuff i mean well your job is real life but i'm sure most of the stuff you ever comment on for media and stuff is about cook um so i had sent you the name the name of my (laughs) podcast i hope it sticks but it's called heart is wild um, and there's this lyric that I heard many years ago from a phosphorus song. And it goes, My heart is wild and my bones are steel. So I always like to share that with people that I interview um, to let that ruminate and ask them like what? Just like if you first read that and like now might be the first time you heard it, what does that mean to you? Or how does that how does that sing to you?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting set of words. For so the first part of it, my heart is wild, I think is something that probably well, I don't know. I thought about this. I don't know that everybody would want to say that. I think it's a subset of people that would say that's true. I don't know that everybody's looking for that, but I do think there are a subset of people that, for them, it would mean. And probably I'm in that in that boat. Is that I don't know. To live, you have to get outside of your comfort zone, right? And there has to be a little bit of that willingness to take on risk and to go someplace you've never gone before, try new things, put yourself at risk. Uh, I don't mean physically necessarily, but just you know what I mean, emotionally at mm-hmm. risk or uh, even physically at risk to try things. So that's the wild part of it for me. But I think if you're going to do that, if you're going to be the person that wants to have that experience, you better be ready for it. And you have to have the foundation and the the willingness to stick with it and to be ready for the blowback that you might get from people. Cause when you put yourself at risk, sometimes, you know, it's not always positive. It can be bad. And so you better be, you know, have bones of steel to make sure you're ready for that and not be damaged by it or understand that that's just part of life. you know, you understand that. Negativity is part of life, and it just depends on how you deal with it. So that's how mm-hmm. I interpreted that.
1: Yeah, I, I resonate with what you say. I get a lot of um, feedback on just like how it speaks to people, and sometimes people like my heart is wild well, is like more of like the freedom of something or the freedom of life and happiness or whatever. Or some people have talked about like passion when they're applying it to like maybe entrepreneurship or business, and then. The, the bones of chill are like lessons learned or things like like you said you have to be kind of prepared for it and then learning by trial and error it's just like that's what kind of like protects you, protects the heart and like the passion to keep moving forward. So anyways I always like to ask that question and like how it resonates with people. Just because you know the point of where I'm trying to you know have have these conversations with are people that in my opinion are are huge that could be like trailblazers or change makers or people that are in you know big um a position that people always wonder why like, yeah, how do those people like keep doing what they're doing? Um, Because I know we're in like a very social media land that every, you can paint a picture however you want, but people really don't know kind of like behind the curtains of like how, how that person is like as a human being. And so those, these kind of conversations, I think always can touch someone or connect with someone in deeper ways um, by shared story. And so anyways, thanks for, thanks for touching on that. So I think, One of the questions I wanted to ask you, what does overwhelm feel like
0: to you? Uh, That can be a variety of different things, I suppose. You know, I would say, I think, honestly, during those first few months of the pandemic, I felt overwhelmed, but not out of control. What I think to me would feel completely overwhelming is if there was a heavy tax on my mental and emotional bandwidth, but I didn't feel like there was a way to get through it. That I think would be truly being overwhelmed. During the pandemic, it felt overwhelming because of the tax on the, you know, just the, the thing, the world was changing. And the it was literally by the minute things were changing and shutting down and all this, the world was just changing before our eyes. That felt overwhelming, but I never felt out of control in the sense that I was fortunate to have, we have some incredible people at Cook that stepped up and said, we're going to, we're going to figure this out, right? We're, we're going to figure out how do we do this? Because we were in a business where We make medical devices, and there were still patients going to the hospital, right? Non-COVID patients were still getting sick and needed product. So we had to make those products. But at the same time, how do you do that and make it so it's safe for people to come in and work and all those things? And so we just set out goals. And once we got to that point where we said, okay, we can do this, we have goals, we know what we're going to do, we're going to make sure we continue to serve patients, and we make it the safest place that anybody can go every day, and it felt like, okay, it's not overwhelming anymore because, yeah, all this is coming at us, but- We know where we're going and we're all going to work towards that. And in that, in a funny way, was incredibly invigorating and rewarding because we were able to do that. I mean, 13,000 people shifted over a course of weeks and just to watch everybody make that shift and to do it successfully and and see what they're capable of was really humbling and just sort of awe-inspiring because companies collapsed during this time and some companies didn't make it and we did. And that, that was something I think. We tell our people, we tell everybody all the time, like, we'll probably never live through something like this again. We came out of it and we survived and we did well and we kept everybody safe. And I think that's something we'll always look back on. If you, I would guess, if you talk to me <laughs> 40 years from now, hopefully, um, that would be something we would say. I think all of us would say, man, we lived through that and we were successful at it.
1: What's one of the biggest projects during the the time? Because we're almost a year, a year ago until we started hearing about the news i think it was in february and then march was i feel like march was like the month that it was like you know we're officially hearing about it um what what's one of the biggest
0: projects you feel like you worked on it started actually it started in, in december for us because we had a team we have a lot of teams in china and so mm. we started to hear about that and i think in hindsight we didn't realize how serious it was uh we were hearing that but we thought oh this is just a regional flu or something and you know and our teams over there were telling us no 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 this is something totally different and i think to our error we didn't understand it and didn't mm-hmm. understand so it really became real for us starting in february where we started to see things shift and we put in place all of our systems but the biggest challenge was we were always a company that worked from an office right we had a very we have a very strong culture and people like each other they've been there for 30 years 40 years and and so it's this community and all of a sudden we had to say overnight i mean people left their stuff on their desk they left their lunches they left everything you know and I'm, we had about four or 5000 people that went from working in an office to all of a sudden going home and working and trying to figure that out. That was immensely challenging and I had thought when we did it, I thought this is going to be chaos, this is going to be I don't know how this is going to work. And within like 2 weeks, people had it figured out and they had we had implemented technology and people were using Webex and Zoom and you know, it just people figured it out and you know it goes back to I think people are we're all capable of more than what we think when we're put under a challenge like that.
1: So you, I mean, the whole company, I mean, with your lead and vision and everybody had to kind of reinvent the way things are done. Have you personally ever had to reinvent yourself?
0: For sure. I think when you go through different phases of a journey in an organization, you know, if you're managing five people, that's one thing. If you're managing 500, it's another. And if you're managing 5,000 or 10,000 or whatever, you, you definitely have to reinvent how you lead and how you think about it. What worked at different stages and different areas doesn't work the same way for different things. So, just to give you an example, like I remember when my early days of cooking, I was maybe managing four or five people. We used to get together and have lunch and every day and talk about what was going on and, you know, really be involved in specific projects. And then I made the jump to like, let's say 50 people. And you quickly realize, well, all those tools that I built to be successful in helping people manage projects don't apply anymore because I can't have lunch with 50 people every day and I can't micromanage and I can't, you know, every step of that journey, you've had to learn something new about how to build resources and how to build teams and then how to environments for people to make decisions and, and lead within their own organizations.
1: I think um, also another a previous conversation you and I had, you had mentioned quote unquote, raw honest discussion is so important to you as well as human interaction. We had briefed on how important it was as leaders to create space for those real honest conversations and to remove hierarchy. Can you speak to that a little bit?
0: So if you think about, I don't know, leadership is a different, it's different in so many different ways and there's so many different types of leading, but what I worry about is that you can get to a position and you can, if you're not careful, you can create a space where people won't tell you what you need to hear. They'll only tell you sort of what they think you want to hear or what they, and that's just deadly for any sort of organization and ability to do anything, make change, lead change. So we work really hard trying to create spaces where people feel comfortable. They feel like it's an honest conversation, but also the small things that you do. Like, you know, there are times when It's very simple to start to put walls up that you don't realize you're putting walls up. For example, you know, if somebody comes to my door and they want to say something and you kind of wave them away because you're busy or whatever, what message does that send to that person, right? And and if you walk into a room and you always sit at the lead table at the lead chair, what message does that send? And, you know, what kind of environment are you creating? There's just little subtle things that people do all the time that just communicate to others that you're not open to communication. And so I've tried to always find ways. I'm not always successful at it. And sometimes it's beyond your own control, but I always try to find a way to, like, I don't ever wear a suit, <laughs> you know, like uh, I just don't. I know there are occasions where I probably should and I just don't, but I do it in per- not on purpose, but it's, it's, it's for one, it's me, but also just because just how you dress can sometimes put a distance between people mm-hmm. and how you talk talk to people. I, well, I'll stop there, but I, I do want to share one story, how sometimes you don't know the way you talk How it affects people. So I was having we have lunch. Now it's a virtual lunch, but we have lunch with twenty five employees around the company every week, just different people, and we have a conversation, no agenda, just a lunch and a conversation. And I used to. What I realized was that I used to have everybody introduce themselves, where they came from, and people would naturally say what their education was. I went to this college, or went here, or whatever. And it wasn't until somebody came up and said, "Hey, you know I." I like this lunch, but I felt really uncomfortable because I didn't graduate high school. Or I didn't graduate college. And so I felt like I was like, I was embarrassed. And I was like, oh, that's terrible. You know, that's not what you want. And I and it was never intended. But like, I understood right then that those types of environments, how you create them can really disempower people or have them put them back in their shell in a way that's not healthy. So I'm always kind of cognizant of those things, too.
1: I'm interested. Um, you had mentioned you're an empathetic person, more so than maybe some other leaders. how Have you always been like that? Or is it something you realized when you moved into a
0: leadership role? It's funny. I, so I, I do think that I am empathetic. I don't know that other people would say, because sometimes people confuse empathy with softness. So I'm not the softest person in the world. Like I'm not, I'm terrible at like remembering kids' names and, you know, birth dates and all that stuff. And I sometimes miss like if other people are having a hard time at home or something. Which I think is kind of those are those are empathetic things, but it's also more of a, it's a sympathy thing too. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm very attuned to how people interact with each other, how they're feeling, what makes them upset or or uncomfortable, and how to create an environment for them to succeed. I'm just bad at remembering birthdays, so <laughs> I, I don't know if that makes me empathetic or not. I am too.
1: You're not alone in that, but I mean you've got a, a lot going on, so you know everybody gets gets passed that. But yeah, I think you. I think that. I mean, I see you as that. I don't work for you, but. Everybody sees someone in the leadership role in different eyes, but I I see you as very empathetic. But I mean, you're also in a leadership role. You have to be strong in in ways that maybe people
0: totally don't understand. Yeah, and I also like you know like I try to I give my email address to everybody in the company because I want them to email. And I get a lot of emails from people, and sometimes I can help, sometimes I can't, but I always try to respond because I want I never want an email to come back for somebody to take the time to email and kind of put themselves out there, you know, to to email me. I would hate for them to ever feel like they couldn't do that or they didn't get a response or it wasn't thoughtful. You know, those are the kind of things that, that worry me a lot. Like I'm always obsessed with like, did I get that person to, to respond to it? You know, did they because I just worry what they would feel like if it didn't, if they felt like I ignored them or, or just blew them off or something.
1: I think it's interesting because, you know, doing so much and even hearing about thinking about like the emails, did I get to that email maybe late at night? What do you do to, and this might not be the phrase question, but to combat the worry? I've got to take care of this. My list is so long. I know you have people to help you, but maybe it's like, what do you do for, I know we're in like self, I feel like today's we're in like self-care, self-help nation right now. There's books and it's like, we're all about that. But I think when it, you know, I talk with a lot of females as well, but when, when talking with men, especially to like, what do you do for your. Um, like self-care or things that make you happy to to balance to balance it all. So whether it's like a, a day in the life of, of Pete or just telling me a little bit about what you do to have that balance, what's that like for you?
0: Yeah, I wish I had a good answer for that. I, when you find the answer, let me know because I think I'm horrible at it. I do obsess and I and I, what's funny is I this is a terrible way to approach this and I know it's the wrong answer, right? In the self-care world, this is the wrong answer. But I think because I obsess, and I always think about what could possibly go wrong, that it helps me anticipate things that might be needed to be done in the future. Mm-hmm. So I'm almost a little bit worried to lose that obsessiveness and that like edge of it, because then I'm like, well, then maybe I just won't be thinking about what needs to be happening and where the future goes. So I don't know. I, I am terrible at that. I don't have a good answer for it. I probably need to do yoga or meditation or something because it would be better for me. But it always makes me worried that I'll lose the that edge of, well, what maybe that could go wrong. And, man, I should talk to that person about it because I want to make sure that it doesn't go wrong. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have an answer for you.
1: Let me rephrase the question. What are some things you do to turn off?
0: Oh yeah. So I, you know, having two boys is awesome that way because they don't care what I'm doing all day long. They don't care. They just expect when I get home that we're going to do something outside. We're going to go sledding. You know, we're going to do whatever we're going to play video games. I don't know. They don't, they don't care about any of that stuff. They just want to interact and, and be there and be present. So that helps a lot when I'm with them. So they, you know, they're, they're 13 and eight. So that those ages are just fun. And I guess as a dad having two boys, uh, you get to relive a little bit of like your childhood you get to go back and do all the fun things that you, know, you did when you grew up and play sports and video games and all, you know, that's just, I don't know. It's just a, it's a short time of the day where you're in a different space.
1: Well, thanks for sharing that. So I think this kind of leads me in um, to our final few questions. I think I think legacy, and especially for people in leader positions, is always something that we think about. You know, at the tail end of our career, or like you know, at the end of our days. So I think this is always kind of an interesting question to ask. But what does legacy mean to you?
0: You know, it's it's an interesting question. We've had some folks retire from Cook here recently who are forty year folks and who have who were there not the beginning, but in some in the early phases of it. And I see what you know. What they did 40 years ago lives on in the organization in some way. And so there is, legacy is a real issue. And it's a real, and I mean for every person, right? I mean, I don't mean, it's not just for me in a leadership position, it's every person. You have an impact mm-hmm. on people that ripples out beyond what everybody thinks, I think. The impact that you have, even if you're just dealing with one person at a time at the grocery store, you know, maybe how you communicate with somebody when you bump into their cart or something, all that stuff ripples forward and it leaves either a positive energy or it leaves a negative energy. And so I hope what I do every day, I try to create positive direction and positive energy that will ripple forward and have a an impact on whoever I interact with. I try, I, I'm a big believer in karma, not in a sort of a spiritual sense of karma, I guess. I don't know, maybe it is, but I believe that there's a real karma is real in the sense that whatever energy you put out Comes back to you in the end. Uh, I've seen it every day and throughout my career. If you put out negative energy, it comes back to you in waves. That's even more negative. And if you put out positive, it ripples out and it, and then somebody else has something positive. So I honestly am a believer in that. And that I would just hope so. Like someday, people said, "Man, he he tried to have positive energy ripple forward like that."
1: Um, and I think when we talk about now versus, you know, 20 years from now, what do you feel like your purpose is right now?
0: Oh, geez. Um, I guess it depends what part of life you're talking about. So I hope like with my kids and my family, and my wife that like, we're making memories that, that they'll remember fondly, you know, the pandemic was weird that way. Like, I think the pandemic people will look on it and it'll be, and it was horrible for so many people we were so fortunate that nobody got sick. My family stayed healthy, And, you know, I, I, we tried to make the best of that experience for our boys. And I think, you know, we did so many fun things to try to keep them occupied and, and do all that. I wonder if they'll look back someday and say, you know, that was, it was a terrible thing, but I also remember very nice memories of my time with my parents. And, you know, so that's one aspect of it. And I guess from a business perspective is that I would like to be able to convince business leaders that, Business is not simply about dollars and cents, that it's about something bigger, and that you can use your business to do good business, but also to do good. And that's not an easy topic. I don't think many business leaders truly want to focus on that or believe in it, but I think it's incredibly important because I just see so many of our institutions that are helping to solve society's problems are falling away. You know, churches are not as big as they once were, and community centers and the VFW or you know, all of these different organizations that were in place to support people are just not as strong as they used to be. And I know government has a place, and they, but they can't fix everything. And I think businesses have a lot of really talented people and opportunities and job opportunities and all sorts of things that if they thought about it a little bit differently, they could be a huge driver of societal change if they embraced it.
1: I think that kind of goes into like you're, you're talking about that, but what are you doing now to make sure that you're leaving the world better than you found it?
0: Well, it's making sure that our organization walks that talk. So I'm fortunate to work for a family that is a big believer in community engagement and not just, you know, we do philanthropy, but it's not just about that. It's about how do we use our business opportunities to really make a difference. I'll give you an example. We have a 35 year partnership with Stonebelt here in Bloomington. Stonebelt is an amazing organization. They do incredible work, they support people with significant mental health or physical disabilities. And the partnership started with Cook 35 years ago with just one of their clients making some product for Cook. And now they have 75 employees and they shipped us 6 million products last year. And so for me, that's an example of you can do good business. You know, Obviously, we could put that business anywhere, right? We could outsource it to some other country, but why not partner with a company like Stone Belt or an organization like Stone Belt and use those same skills and opportunities to really have an impact on people's lives? And so I think making sure that we're, as an executive team, as a, as a leadership team, being stewards of that type of thinking, I think is really important.
1: Thanks for sharing that. And here's my final question. And you and I had talked about this. So you previously, when we had chatted, you were talking about happiness through this like life cycle. And I think my question back then to you um, was, what do you think the definition of real happiness is?
0: Hmm. Yeah. So I think the definition of real happiness is, is hard to, It's hard, isn't it? People, that's why people write books every year about how to find happiness. I think it means different things in different life, like different life stages. You know, when I was, like I talked about when I was a kid growing up and I was able to ride my bike over and see my friends, I can't imagine being any happier at that time. You know, when you're first getting out of college and you're trying to figure out how to get a job, there was some happiness, but there was also a lot of angst and, and fear. As you're going through and having kids, there's angst and fear. But as I'm getting older, and my kids are getting older. Some of that stuff that you worry about and that you've, spread about and that you think is important kind of drops away. And I feel what's happening is as you get older, happiness creeps into that space where you used to worry about things that really just didn't matter and contentment and all that. So I don't know, maybe by the time I'm 90, hopefully I'll be fully happy.
1: I know that. And then that's when it's all over, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I guess that's right. Not really. I think there are lots of people, I, you know, your grandmother was 99. You know, I know, I know right? right? Yeah.
1: So yeah. So I think that your real ha- the real happiness, but to think of it in life cycles, you know, with age and stuff, you find the happiness in the five-year the five year trying to have kids and having kids. And then now you're having older kids now and then where you're at in your journey. But I think that is some pretty insightful ways to, to look at happiness because if we think of it, this is the key definition of happiness in one way. It can kind of set us up to fail sometimes.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you think about there's only one way to be happy, then- you feel like you're never there. And so you're never happy. It's like, I don't know. There are just times when I'm like, I'm not thrilled right now. I'm not all that content. I'm not that happy. That's just part of the journey, I guess. You know, it's not like it's going to be that way forever. You know, your everyday changes. And, and like I said, as I get older, some of that stuff that made me unhappy in the past, I just don't worry about it anymore. It's like, it it's just I, like, I can't even believe I worried about that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and you build a, a thicker skin, you put yourself in places that where your happiness is more likely, you kind of figure out how to navigate that. So, you just get older and wiser.
1: Yeah. Speaking of wise, what's the best piece of advice or wisdom you've ever gotten?
0: I've had a lot of really interesting moments, I guess, in my life where I've like, where your eyes open, you know, how you have those instances where like, Oh my God, I had no idea. That's how life looked. Mm-hmm. I had one in law school. I had this amazing professor who everybody was terrified of, and he was just kind of this older and, and he was, he was very hard. But it was never in an unfair way, and it was never in a mean way. It was like he would push you and push you and push you to think about things differently. And he was talking about the definition of some legal term. And everybody had come with preconceived notions about what those words meant and what, what that was. And he kept pushing and pushing and pushing until you realized there was no real definition of what that answer is. It's only what we choose to put into law or what we choose to say it means. And I was like, oh. I finally figured out what about half the world is right. There is no real answer to that. It's only what we choose to make things mean and the rules we put around them. And so that kind of was an eye-opening experience of like, oh, that's it's it's really important to realize that it matters more how we react to things and how we choose to put rules in place that matter, not so much the definition of things.
1: Awesome. Well, Pete, I've got some random question. What's what's your favorite ice cream?
0: <laughs> my favorite ice cream. So I'll tell you my favorite place to go for ice cream is the chocolate mousse. You you got to know the chocolate mousse has been there forever. I love it. Um, The mint chocolate chip ice cream there is fantastic. Mm -hmm. But I also like to go to Brewster's and in the fall, they have their uh, apple cinnamon dumplings, (laughs) which is like spectacular. So I always look forward to the fall ice cream.
1: All right. What's um, something in the next three weeks or three months you're looking forward to? Non-work-related, non-work-related.
0: Non-work related. Well, I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to is, I really think this is true. So I, we're recording this in February. I feel like we're at the end of a long year, of a long journey that I think is going to feel very, very different in a few months. I think the weather's gonna get nicer. I think more and more people are gonna have the vaccine, hoping the numbers stay low, people can get outside, they can start to see their family again a little bit. I think we're gonna come out of a year-long funk that I'm excited to see what happens for people, myself, my family, but I'm hopeful that we have sort of a, as much of a funk as we've had, I hope people have as much fun and realize how important it is to be with people and to be with your families and to do those kinds of things. I think it'll be interesting Mm -hmm. to see what it's like for people in in the spring.
1: Very cool. Um, Do you have any tattoos?
0: I do not, but I've been considering.
1: Really? So you're considering what, tell us what it is.
0: (laughs) That's the problem. That's why I'm considering. I haven't, there's an artist that I know that I I would like to have him draw this thing, uh, but I haven't had him draw it yet. So I need to get it drawn to make sure it works in a tattoo form. Where are you going to put it? Probably on my shoulder.
1: Like right or left, any
0: significance? No significance, right or left. It's more the significance of the image. They don't have it yet, so I can't really talk about it. Sweet. I have to post a picture on Cook's homepage. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's exactly where we go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, okay, two more random questions. Have you ever pierced your ears or like your nose?
0: Yes, I did pierce my ears <laughs> when I was in college. It was a big mistake. Oh, that man. was a time though. I grew up in the grunge era. <laughs> no, it was terrible. Speaking of uh,
1: grunge uh, era, favorite band, late high school, college days? Well,
0: I came when I was a freshman in high school, Pearl Jam came out. Oh, in Nirvana. Jam, sure. I mean, you had, I mean, that was like a life changing event when Pearl Jam and Nirvana both hit the, hit the airwaves. Ever Couldn't seen you in concert? Like, uh, I've seen Pearl Jam several times. Never saw Nirvana, but you know it was like all of a sudden you went from hair bands to Pearl Jam and Nirvana, and it was like, what the heck just happened?
1: So good. I used to think um, the song "Better Man" was a love song, and then I list, finally listened <laughs> really, to the lyrics. Not. I made it. made a mix, well CD back then, and I put "Better Man" on this like love mix, and my partner was so like, much. this is definitely not a love song. It's like, all right, that I really did. I'm, I'm a fan too. All right, Pete. Well, we did go over, but thank you so much. For opening up and sharing, and um, yeah, it's such a it's such a treat to interview you, and I really appreciate your time.
0: Well, thanks for having me. It was great to talk with you, and uh, appreciate. It. It's always good to have an opportunity to talk about things that are outside your normal area. So it's was a fun conversation.
1: I, I I know it is kind of fun. I'm also going to um, probably message you every two months and ask when you're getting your tattoo. <laughs>
0: yeah, I'll let you know.
1: All right, awesome. Have uh, a great day. All right. right, This is the end of today's episode. Thanks a lot for listening and stay tuned for future episodes. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And on that note, I wish you all a great day and I'll see you next week.